Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. The following story comes from tonight's book. It is entitled, A Story of Mischievous Fairies. My longtime friend, who is known in certain nefarious circles as T.P. Dan, sent me the following report of an encounter that he had one evening with the good neighbors. I was living in a teepee in winter outside Reno, Nevada, sitting in front of one of those little wood stoves oval cylinders of sheet metal with a round regulator at the bottom and a flippy lid on top. Sticks were piled up against the stove and the surrounding rocks that supported it. A pot of soup heating prevented me from opening the top lid. The regulator plug was off so I could feed sticks to the fire and so I could watch the fire. My soup began to boil, so I gingerly moved the little enameled pot to the edge of the stove. I sat too warm. My gaze drifted slowly to the open regulator. The teepee was dark, with the fire bright of flames and coals contained within a circle. My eyes roamed absently, coming to rest upon the woodpile. The pile of buff sticks was interesting, complex. I stared at it emptily. There, on top of the woodpile, sat a little brown man in a long pointed cap with a pointed beard. Attenuated and thin, he kicked back, legs bent sharply at the knees in easy balance, arms to the side in a pose of an archaic dancer, as if to mock me. I reached to touch him, to grasp him, and he disappeared before my eyes in an instant by turning into a stick on top of the woodpile. But, he was able to spill my soup before he did. The story you just heard comes from tonight's book, The Sacred Herbs of Samhain, Plants to Contact the Spirits of the Dead, by Ellen Everett Hopman. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Goblins, I'm your host Jason, and tonight we're getting spooky with The Sacred Herbs of Samhain by Ellen Everett Hopman. 
But first, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Soul Rising Studios. Your contributions help pay server cost, purchase reading material, and allows me to get the extra special porridge for my gnomes. Maybe now they'll bring back my house keys. If you too would like to join the Esoteric Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. I'm going to be completely honest here. I am really far behind. I got the book done. I have no idea if there's enough material here to do a full episode, so I actually read a second book. Or at least part of a second book. I also have a handful of articles I could do. I seriously have no idea how this episode is going to turn out, so just bear with me and we'll see what happens. The Sacred Herbs of Samhain was written by Ellen Everett Hopman and released by Destiny Books in 2019. Destiny Books is a division of Inner Traditions and Bear Company. Before we get started on the contents of the book, I have to give a few shout-outs for the publication side. First, I have to compliment Aaron Davis for the cover art, because man, this is a beautiful book. Next, I want to point out that Destiny Books publishes using solar power, is part of the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, and also a member of the Hacienda Rio Coat Reforestation Project. The basic idea behind these initiatives is for publishers and publication companies to replant more trees than were used in the publication of the book itself. So huge kudos to Destiny Books for being a part of all of these projects. Next up, we have the author, Ellen Everett Hopman. Ellen is a master herbalist and homeopath who has been a Druid initiate since 1984. She is a founding member of the Order of the White Oak, an Archdruidess of the Tribe of the Oak, and a former professor at the Gray School of Wizardry. At different parts of her career, she has been a member of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, and the ADF. She is the author of several books, including A Legacy of Druids, in which she interviews druids from various paths and traditions. It's not great show material, but still an interesting read. Tonight's book begins with an introduction to Samhain, herbs, and how the two can be used together. For those who don't know, Samhain is a neo-pagan holiday that roughly takes place around Halloween. It is a time when the world of the dead and the world of the living are closest together. It also serves as the final fire festival of the season, and is also considered in general the Celtic New Year. That really gives you a good summary of what's going to be covered in this book. You're going to be dealing with herbs in relation to spirits, ghosts, and really protecting yourself from those two things. There's a little bit more nuance to it, but not a lot. After the introduction, there's a chapter that is basically a primer on herbal preparations. I can't say that it's an instructional chapter, and I can't say that it's really just a descriptive chapter. It kind of falls somewhere in between. In some cases, it has very good information. 
In others, it's very limited. They're more of detailed descriptions than actual instruction. For example, in the section about tea, do you know what the difference between an infusion and a decoction is? An infusion is what we think of as the basic preparation of tea today. You have your herbs, you put them in a cup, and you pour boiling water over top of them and let them sit. In a decoction, you add the herbs to simmering water, not boiling, simmering, and you have to maintain that heat for a certain amount of time in order to release the essential oils from the herb itself. Generally, you'll use an infusion for things like flowers or leaves, but you'll use the decoction method for something like roots, bark, seeds, something with denser plant material. Now, in the book, she gives information saying that you should allow the plant to simmer or steep for 20 minutes. This information isn't exactly wrong, but it is overly reductive. For example, some plant material will actively start to degrade if you let it sit there for 20 minutes, while others that you have to simmer, well, 20 minutes may not be long enough. So now you start to understand why I say it's more of a description of the process rather than instruction for the process. Now this chapter covers everything from tea and salves to poultices, fomentations, tinctures. It even covers homeopathy and plant essences. It doesn't cover any of these in any great detail, but it does give you a brief idea of what each process is. In fact, until reading this, I always assumed that homeopathy was just a synonym for herbalism. But no, homeopathy is to herbalism what alchemy is to chemistry. They're related, and they share a lot of the same language, but they're not at all the same thing. Homeopathy is kind of like a combination of animism and, and herbalism. You basically are trying to capture the spirit or essence of a plant into some sort of medium, in this case, water, oil, or alcohol. It actually reminds me a lot of the creation and use of graveyard dirt, except for plants. But it also kind of follows the principles of holy water. So, like, if you put a single drop of the original plant essence into another container of water, regardless of the size of that container, all of that water is now infused with that plant essence. And then that secondary container full of plant essence can then go on to create more plant essence without in any way being watered down. At least, that's the theory. Let's move forward before I get too far off track here. Everything that I just covered is essentially the introduction. The part coming up next is what I personally refer to as the field guide section. The official title is Part 1, Herbs of the Spirits and the Dead, and How to Use Them at Samhain. Part 1 is divided into four separate sections. Herbs for protection from and communication with the spirits and fairies, herbs for purification, 
visionary herbs and herbs of divination, and herbs to communicate with, release, and honor the dead. To give you an idea of the amount of content that you're getting in this section, the whole book is only 180 pages. Part 1 is 71 pages, and that is divided up between those four sections. And that's not an equal division, either. For example, the first section, Herbs for Protection from and Communication with the Spirits, that section is 49 pages. And that's where my first criticism of this book comes in. This section is formatted like a field guide, so I don't feel like it should have been divided into four different segments. Instead, it should have been an alphabetical list of the herbs, with more information on each herb in its own entry, rather than having the herb in four different segments where you have to flip between pages to get a full picture of what that herb does. Now, because these four segments are broad categories and important categories, you could have just had a bulleted list with those four categories at the beginning of the field guide section. That way, you could have, say, herbs of purification, and it would list which herbs within the field guide are applicable, and then a page number to turn to. Instead, you have to go to that section and flip through until you find the herb. Or, conversely, you could use the index in the back of the book, which, in this case, there's three indexes, and that's actually a good thing, and I'll talk about that later. But, let's use an example. Let's say you want to look up the apple. Yes, the fruit. So in this case, you can find information about the apple on pages 3, 16, 17, 18, 19, 75, 76, and 128. Now, not all of those entries are in the field guide section. But there are two within that section. The first one is in with communication and protection from spirits and fairies, and the other is within divination. But imagine if it were reformatted and you could just turn to the entry for Apple, and you have all of that information at your fingertips. Now you may be wondering why I keep referring to this as a field guide rather than a magical text. And that's because these entries are formatted more like a guide than a list of correspondences. Each entry, and that is referring to each entry of a single herb, comes with both the common names, yes, plural, the scientific name, which is excellent, a description of the herb, what it's used for medicinally and in the lore, sometimes a recipe, and finally, how it can be used specifically for Samhain. These entries are kind of a mixed bag. They do some things that are very, very good, and some things that are, frankly, confusing. For example, I got really excited when it shows multiple common names for a plant. And this is because regionally, and even within local regions, Plants can sometimes have different common names. That's why it's also important to include the scientific name. For example, in the recent past, 
there has been a lot of confusion between St. John's wort and St. John's weed. And in certain parts of the Appalachians, those two names are used interchangeably for both herbs. On top of that, some of these entries are fantastic. For example, the entry on Mandrake. It has all kinds of historic notations, and all of it is annotated with footnotes. Then, it also has some entries on its use in herbal medicine. But now we come to my next criticism. The part where it talks about using Mandrake for Samhain is exponentially smaller than everything else that is mentioned in that entry. This is a common problem throughout the rest of the book. The section that applies the herb to Samhain, which I remind you is the theme of the book itself, is generally only about one or two sentences long, which is very confusing considering how much time is spent on herbs talking about, say, pain relief, or wound management, or insomnia, or even just a relaxing tea. I didn't get this book as an herbal medicine guide. I got this to find herbs specific to ritual use during the Samhain season. While it's nice to know that a tincture of English ivy can be used to treat warts, what does that have to do with Samhain? Before we leave this section of the book, I do want to give one more very huge shout-out to whoever edited and formatted this book. A common complaint that I have made about books involving herbs and magical use in the past is that they didn't have adequate caution or, or warnings with them. In this book, Anytime there is a possibility of an interaction or, uh, say, an allergy or an interaction with a medication, that warning is in bold letters and highlighted. There is really no way that you can overlook this warning unless you intentionally skip it. As an example, let me read you the caution on mistletoe. It says, Caution! Make sure you are using twigs and leaves of European mistletoe, Viscum album, and not the American varieties, which are poisonous and abortive. Avoid the berries. They are poisonous in all species. Mistletoe should be avoided by those with autoimmune conditions, such as multiple sclerosis, lupus, and rheumatoid arthritis, those with heart disease, leukemia, or liver disease, and by anyone who will soon be having surgery or has undergone organ transplant. That all may sound pretty scary, but in all fairness, it should. There are some plants that are just hazardous for humans to handle, and we should all know that going into it, whether it's being used for medicine or medicinal purposes, or for magical purposes. So to reiterate the things that are done very well in this book, herbs, common names, their scientific names, and full and adequate cautions for each herb. This should be the baseline standard for any magical text that references plants or herbs. 
I am very inflexible on these three things. And if I find any book that does not use these, I will call them out on it. While this book is very good about doing those few things, what it doesn't always achieve is tying the herb back to Salwin. Yes, every entry tangentially mentions each herb in reference to Salwin, but sometimes it is so cursory that it's hard to justify the entry in the first place. And then even then, the herbal entry goes on with things like, say, pain relief or insomnia or a toothache, which is fine, but that's not the theme of the book. Every entry should be reinforcing the theme. Every entry should be able to indirectly justify why it's included in this book. For example, let me read you the section on lichen at Samhain. It says, Scope out a lichen-covered rock and return to it after Samhain to see if the fairies had a battle. That's it. That is the only information about lichen that ties it back to Samhain. So in this instance, there needs to be more information fleshed out for the entry on lichen, or lichen should be eliminated entirely from the book. The same can be said for some of the recipes in here. For example, let's look at the entry on the Rowan tree. There is some fantastic suggestions in here. For example, making equal armed solar crosses from Rowan wood and hanging those as a form of protection. Making a crown or necklace from the dried berries, again for protection. Or even starting fires using Rowan wood at the barn to protect your livestock. All of this is fantastic. But then there's a recipe for Rowan berry jam. And then the entry for Rowan at Samhain simply says, have the jam for breakfast. Why? Like, of all the suggestions of things that you can use Rowan for in reference to Samhain, you suggest using it as a breakfast confection. Instead of including a recipe that is really only mentioned in hindsight, how about step-by-step -step instructions on how to harvest, string, dry, and wear rowan berries? There is a trick to it to keep them from rotting. I feel like that would be far more interesting and far more useful than making something that you put on your toast. Think about it. We're going into the time of year when spirits are closest to the living world when they are at their strongest, when they are at their most able to influence us in our everyday life. And instead of teaching us how to create a magical talisman to protect ourselves, you teach us how to make dessert. Okay, okay, I've been ranting long enough. It's time to move on. We've reached part two, Herbs, Foods, and Traditions of Samhain. Well, unfortunately, this section comes with the same complications as the first. Some entries have too much information, and some entries have too little. For example, we return to our good friend, the apple. The entry for apple in this section simply says, 
Bury an apple at Samhain as food for those spirits waiting to be born. See page 16 for more on the lore, history, and usage of apple. That's it. That's the whole entry that really could have just been rolled into the previous entries in the book and been done with it, but no. They made a whole section just for that. Conversely, there's the entry for seaweed, which is two and a half pages worth of material. Granted, I understand that seaweed is a broad term covering several different plant species, but still, we're not getting a lot of information in those two and a half pages, because a lot of that space is taken up by three different recipes. In all fairness, I do think this is a rather interesting entry. Because seaweed is one of those things that we don't naturally think about in terms of Samhain. We think mostly in terms of landlocked areas and how they celebrate there. We think of turnips and pumpkins. But historically, there's a lot of communities that lived on the seashore and relied on the sea for food. As mentioned in the book, the two most common times of year to harvest seaweed are in spring and in fall. In spring, seaweed is some of the first greenery that you can get back in your diet after a long winter. And in fall, it's some of the last green that you can actually harvest and store long term for the coming winter months. When it's all said and done, yes, Samhain is about spirits and spirits of the dead, but it's also a harvest festival. And part of the harvest in coastal areas is seaweed. Before we move on to the actual ritual aspect of the season, I want to talk about one last recipe, and that is the recipe for something called a dumb cake. Yeah, that sounds ridiculous, but bear with me. The dumb cake has to do with a ritual called the dumb supper, which I will go into more detail here in a moment. But these cakes, also known as spirit cakes, are grain-based ritual items that are made as offerings to the spirits of the departed. Here's where it gets a little weird. Spirit cakes and dumb cakes were originally two different things. Spirit cakes are exactly what I just described. They are food-based offerings. But dumb cakes initially were a divination method used by girls to divine their future husbands. As part of the ritual, these cakes would have been mixed, baked, and eaten in complete silence, sometimes before bed. Now, the idea varies from place to place and tradition to tradition, but the idea is that at some point after the baking and consuming of these dumb cakes, the girl would see in a reflection or see in a vision or even sometimes see in her dreams the man that she would marry. In fact, if she didn't see anything at all, that was a portent that she was going to be a spinster. So when did spirit cakes and dumb cakes become the same thing? We don't really see the combination until about 1929, when we hear about an African-American folktale where a woman used a dumb supper and dumb cakes to summon the spirits of the dead. 
we also start to see similar things in Great Britain about that same time. Which really doesn't surprise me because that's about the same time that Aleister Crowley was at the height of his infamy. In a book on Manx traditions in 1942, there's information about dumb cakes being used on the Isle of Man in reference to the Celtic New Year celebrations. I also want to point out this is specifically for Celtic New Year, not for Samhain, not for All Souls Day, not for All Saints Day. This is a New Year's celebration. Now, there's not a lot of detail given, so we don't really know about the ritual and the process behind these dumb cakes. We just know that that's what they were called, and they were used at this time for this tradition. You know what just occurred to me is where the name Dumb Supper comes from. Today, we think of the word dumb to denote someone of low intelligence, someone stupid. But the word didn't originally mean that. Originally, dumb meant mute. Think of the phrase deaf, dumb, and blind. Doesn't make sense for it to be unintelligent. But if you say deaf, mute, and blind, it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? I'm a big proponent in allowing language to grow and evolve over time. So, the modern use of the word dumb, I'm kind of okay with, even though it is a derogatory term. But in this sense, using the phrase dumb supper to refer to a silent or mute supper, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. The best way I can describe it is like using the word retarded in reference to someone with Down's syndrome. Yes, it was used at one time, but it's now considered a derogatory term for a, uh, an impairment. So, considering I'm now slightly uncomfortable with this term, I'm going to refer to this as a silent supper for the rest of this episode. Now, what we think of as the modern Silent Supper is entirely a fabrication of the Wiccan revival. It's not exactly made up wholesale, but it is a combination of a bunch of various belief systems and, and rituals combined together with a pseudo-reconstructionist theme. The ritual is performed as denoted in the name, completely in silence. But also it is often done by candlelight without the aid of any electronic devices. The host will begin with a pre-ritual announcement describing the entire process, what they're doing, how everybody will participate, and then the silence will begin. The table is set with one place for each participant, but also an empty space designated for those who have passed on. Now this setting will still be served food as part of the ritual, only when the ritual is done, this food will oftentimes be taken outside into the woods where it can be served and consumed by the spirits. That's pretty much it. It's a ritual dinner served in silence with ghost. Think of it like a gothic version of Thanksgiving. 
The book concludes with a Samhain ritual that Hoffman wrote and performed in 1999. Historically, that in itself is quite interesting because it's a snapshot of a time and place. Much like I talked about in my review of The Pagan Book of Living and Dying, it's a very significant, very unique look at witchcraft in the 90s. There's also a final chapter about the goddess, capital G, at Samhain. Now, when we hear the goddess, we typically at this time think of the tripartite goddess figure. It is a generic entity. It is the maiden, mother, and crone. That's not always the case. In a lot of modern practices, the goddess, even the triple goddess, is seen as the three faces of Hecate. But in this book, it's seen as the three faces of the Morrigan. That kind of makes sense, though. This is a book about a Celtic fire festival. As with most things in this book, there's not a ton of detail given to it, but there are some suggestions on how to perform a ritual, how to set up an altar, and how to have a service to the Morrigan at Samhain. There's also two appendices to this book. The first one is how to leave offerings to land spirits, and the second one is how to leave offerings on different Sabbaths. Both are kind of useful, but again, no great detail is given to either section. So what do I think of this book? Let's start out by talking about the things that this book does well. First of all, this is a beautiful book. The cover art is amazing. And inside, there are full-color reconstructions of historic plant art. In regards to the entries on the herbs themselves, there are common names, scientific names, and comprehensive warnings. The book itself has a table of contents, an index, actually multiple indexes, it references and cites its sources, and it has multiple appendices. So what do I mean when I say it has multiple indexes? So it actually has three specific indexes. The first is the general index that we think of with most books. It's simply bullet points of topics within the book. You know, where can you find stuff that references the apple, or where can you find stuff about rosemary? Things like that. But the other two indexes are an index of specific herbs. The first one is an index of common names. The second is an index by scientific name. So if you are going above and beyond and you can tell me what the Latin name is for a specific herb, you can also cross-reference that Latin term within the book. If you combine all of these things, you would think that this is a book that I would enjoy. The problem is that I don't necessarily like the content that is presented, nor do I like how it's presented. Oftentimes within the book, there seems to be a lack of focus. It's like Hopman looked and said, okay, I can write about this because it's about herbs, or I can write about this because it's about Samhain. But 
there's very few times where it seems there's content presented that are about herbs used in reference to Samhain. There's that combination. There's that reinforcing of the theme of the book. And a lot of times, it's not there. It also seems like the book spends a lot of time waffling between being a magical correspondence and a field guide, without actually leaning too far in either direction, which means that it also doesn't achieve either goal. It just sort of sits awkwardly somewhere in the middle. I would have preferred that they leaned in one direction or the other and stuck to it. I honestly feel like this could have been achieved pretty easily if they just made a few formatting changes. Instead of dividing the herbs up based on purpose or use, put all the herbs together and then just have bullet points listing, okay, is this a protective herb? Is this a divination herb? Is this for uh, a spirit offering? Is this for, um, I don't know, exorcisms? Something like that. Then you list the folklore and the stories behind it. And finally, tie it all together. Talk about how it's used at Samhain. Expand on other plants and other herbs and other fruits that can be used in combination with the plant in the entry. Give us the building blocks and let us construct from there. Finally, I would have liked to have seen the how-to aspects expanded upon. We had a lot of recipes in there, but I would also like to see, say, how do you make a solar cross? Or how do you weave a wreath? Can you combine the two? The answer is yes, I've done it. But you don't hear any of that in the book. How about when you make a wreath, how do you add the herbs to it? How do you attach them? How do you hang it? Where do you hang it? When do you hang it? How long will it last? See, these are all questions that I had while reading the book. I know it sounds like I'm being overly critical of this book, but we've seen good examples of books of this type. For example, The Old Magic of Christmas, or the book that I'm reviewing next month, The Secret History of Christmas Baking. You see, there's a theme, and the book sticks to it. It's about Christmas and the Yuletide season, and, as you've guessed, baking. Let's wrap this up before I go off on another tangent. The Sacred Herbs of Samhain. It's probably a good book for someone who has never celebrated Samhain before, or someone who is entirely new to the craft. It'll be a good primer, a good survey. But for those of us who have already been in the craft for a length of time, maybe just borrow a copy from your local library instead. That said, if you want a copy of your own, I will post a link to it in the show notes. That is almost a full episode. Still have a few minutes left. So let's check out an article or two. Let's see what's happening in the news. Do you remember a few months ago I talked about the asteroid Bennu and how it was basically a conglomeration of different particles and dust and rocks? Two nations were sending landers to take samples from that asteroid. 
One was Japan with the Hayabusa 2 surveyor, and the other was the Osiris-Rex from the United States. The two nations took very different approaches to how they were going to collect samples from this asteroid. Japan had a smaller, faster, more precise lander. It got in there, it grabbed a sample, and it came back to Earth. And they sent it back again, and they took a second sample and came back. In that same amount of time, the Osiris-Rex slowly trucked its way out there, grabbed the biggest handful of dirt that it could get a hold of, smashed that into a container, and then slowly chugged its way back to the U.S. To put this in perspective, Hayabusa, in total, collected 5.4 grams of material between its two missions. Osiris-Rex collected an estimated 250 grams. Now I'm going to have to verify how this is measured, but it seems like that is just the amount that's inside the canister. As reported in early October, scientists of the Osiris-Rex, they haven't even opened the canister yet. They are just studying what they call bonus particles that were attached to the lander and collecting mechanism itself. Since that time, it has been reported that NASA was able to collect 70 grams of material just from what was on the outside of that vessel. Here's the funny thing. We don't know what's inside the container because we can't get it open. For some reason, the latching mechanism is malfunctioning, and it's completely sealed shut. Because of safety precautions around the opening of this vessel, we can't just hack into it with a saw. This has to be in a sealed box or a sealed container with a constant flow of nitrogen gas. We can't expose it to the Earth atmosphere because that would contaminate the sample and it would throw off all the readings that we've got. So until then, it's just kind of in a special high-tech Ziploc bag. And no, I'm not exaggerating here. Anyway, that's all I have for you tonight. I do have to apologize to the members of the Esoteric Archive. I'm just going to have to release a special episode for you because I'm already behind, right? Well, now I've run out of time. And one thing I've been struggling with learning is that done is better than perfect. So this episode is by far not perfect. In fact, it, in my opinion, is one of the worst episodes I've ever released. But, it's done. And this weekend, I will record your individual special episode just for the members of the Esoteric Archive. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and now on Threads. If you would like to join the members of the Esoteric Archive, and you have my apologies again, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. So until next time, remember, stay weird.
Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at pcsbnetwork.com today.